Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Right. So, um, last time we were talking about this whole conditioning model. Basically, you can call it the reinforcement model, maybe a drug-taking behavior. I think that's a sensible thing to call it. And basically, yeah, it's just conditioning. It's simply conditioning. So what that means then um, is that the feeling you get after taking a drug, right after taking it, is what acts as the reinforcer. Right? And if that's the case, then the nice thing about this is it explains the sort of paradox of positive and negative effects of drugs. The positive effects are pleasant. They tend to, uh, the things we're talking about typically in this course operate the mesolimbic dopamine system, the ventral tegmental to accumbens to medial forward bundle circuit. Okay? You'll find that almost everything we talk about that people take for fun. Um, there are receptors for that drug that are expressed in the accumbens of the, uh, typically the accumbens, but also it could be the ventral tegmental area or the medial forward bundle. Um, now, with reinforcement, the way it works is that whatever immediately follows the behavior, that will either increase or decrease the likelihood of the behavior. So if right after you do something, you get something that feels good. This is like how you train your dog, right? You, you, you give him a cookie right after he goes outside and takes a crap. He now goes outside and takes a crap, right? If you, and this also explains why, for example, if you come home and your dog's pooped on the floor, kicking it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything. All the dog learns in that case is that you're a jerk that kicks it when it comes home, when you come home. Right? So it's what immediately follows. So while we all know the negative effects of drugs, be they very long-term, like you know, chronic uh, alcohol or nicotine abuse or use, or be they even short-term, <clears throat> like a hangover, we know that that's going to happen very often. In fact, a lot of people know that, oh, I'll pay for this tomorrow. You hear people say that, you know, I'm going to feel horrible tomorrow but they still are sitting there and they have, oh, I'll just have one more. Now, the thing is, the next day, you go do it again. And you'll hear people say, well, I don't really understand why people take heroin. It's got so many bad things that can happen to you. And we'll talk about this, about, how, about 20 23%, I think, of IV drug users in the United States, and there's no reason to assume it's any different in Canada, are HIV positive, because they share needles. Why would you share a needle? That's stupid. It can kill you if the other person has, say, you know, AIDS or, you know, even hepatitis or something like that. Well, that's long term. Right away, though, the feeling of uh, feels great, right? So the nice thing about this is it's the only model really that explains the positive and negative uses. Uh, sorry, uh, the, the sort of paradox of the positive and negative effects of drugs. And the choice in taking a drug depends on the other available reinforcers. And I mentioned the other day how Heyman says that it follows the matching law. The matching law is the thing in um, conditioning that says you will distribute your responses in proportion to the amount of reinforcement you get from each behavior. So if you have a pigeon and you have a, a little, two little lighted keys, little lighted discs, 
and one gives out two pieces of food, the other one gives out one piece of food, the pigeon won't just peck at the one that gives two pieces of food. It will peck twice as much at the one that gives two pieces of food compared to the one that gives one. Okay. The interesting thing is here, and this Haney found this through a whole lot of experiments with rats, giving them different drugs, that the reinforcement value of a, of a drug will drive uh, the behavior. So the more reinforcing the drug, the more likely you, you are to have to take the behavior, sorry, to, to take the drug. It's also the case then that the, <coughs> and let's look at this sort of like from a almost sort of sociological perspective, the more stuff you have available in your life as a human being to make yourself feel good, the less likely you are to take drugs, psychoactive drugs to make you feel good. Because there's other things you can do. There's other things you can do, right? Other available reinforcers. If you're like, you know, most of us, pretty much middle class people, there's all kinds of other things you could do. Right? If you're quite poor, I don't mean student poor, okay? Right, I don't mean like, oh, I have to live on a futon, sleep on a futon and eat ramen noodles for four years. Big deal. Try doing it for nine and a half. That's quick. <laughs> um, I mean, like, you know, proper poverty. You don't get much else. You may not have a job, or the job you have sucks. It doesn't pay very well. Right? But you can easily... Uh, Go down to the corner and get some crack from that guy. It feels good. Right? So it actually explains something very specific here about just within moment to moment drug taking. The model actually has a physiological basis because when you look at the drugs, they're the ones that make you feel good, are the ones that you tend to take more of. We know that they operate the mesolimic dopamine system. And then it can even explain something as large as the fact that there are more drug problems the lower your socioeconomic status. It's a pretty pervasive model, it seems to me. Pervasive is the wrong word. Um, powerful, I guess is a better word. It has a lot of explanatory value. right? And most of these other models don't. The disease model doesn't really explain, why, for example, why poor people have more of the disease. Yeah, you could say, yeah, they have more of the disease, so that's why they end up poor. Hmm. Psychological and physical dependence don't explain this at all. Right? Whereas this one, rather, I think, elegantly does. And yes, I know rich people take drugs. <coughs> and I know that I talked the other day about um, when I mentioned behavioral tolerance, and I talked about uh, Tim Raines, ball player for the Expos, that back in the early 80s, that you know, was snorting cocaine between innings. Yeah, he was making a lot of money. But he's the exception that proves the rule. Guys like that, right? Because, I mean, there are more problems with drugs the lower your socioeconomic status, as a rule. And when we talk about the, 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 the probably the most disturbing topic in this class, which is inhalant abuse, where you see five- and six-year-old kids huffing gasoline, where do they do that? They do that in isolated native communities in Canada and inner cities in the United States, where people have no prospects for anything, or at least so it seems that way but they can make themselves feel good pretty easily. Right? 
And it's interesting, if we use this for treatment options, one of the things that's often done now is that people that have drug problems are taught to take joy in other things in their lives. It's very effective to teach people, for example, that hanging out with your family is kind of fun. You know, sort of, you, you may have said this to a friend of yours at some point, you know, get a hobby. <laughs> Somebody who drinks too much or something. In fact, if you can find something you enjoy, that'll work. The other neat thing is, this explains things other than drugs. It explains sort of problem behavior. We want to, we want to call it being addicted to World of Warcraft. Right? This explains people that still... You know, Shop too much. Gambling. Gambling. It, it, it's beautiful for gambling. Yep. And again, who does gambling hit the hardest? It hits people that have no other prospects. Right? So the, the, the beauty of this is it actually even explains things like, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a shopaholic. First of all, there's no such thing as shopahol. So never call yourself a shopaholic. <laughs> but... It even explains that kind of strange problem behavior, right? The person who is, uh, if you want to use the term addicted, to World of Warcraft, likely doesn't have a lot of friends. I have friends that play a lot of World of Warcraft that are addicted, that have friends and they don't like devote their lives to it. They might sit down when a new expansion pack comes out and play all night. I get that. But I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about doing it all the time at the expense of everything. You know, there's cases of this where people, for example, of uh, all kinds of these, some virtual worlds, things like this. Second Life, I think that's still available. Four or five people still using it, I think. A bunch of other things like this. Whatever the behavior may be. So that's the really nice thing here, is it actually even explains that kind of thing. So I guess it kind of explains, too, why some people become addicted to drugs, whereas other people can use it recreationally and not be yeah. addicted. Yeah, it really does. I mean, because now there are going to be physiological differences, of course, between individuals, obviously. But generally, the person that can take drugs and not, again, on average, I call them hands off with individuals, but if you look at average groups, the people that can take drugs and not have a drug problem are tend to be really more educated people who are therefore going to be more have higher socioeconomic status. Look, during university, things like that, when you're young, a lot of people do a lot of stupid things. Right? People take all kinds of different fun substances. <laughs> but a lot of times you sort of grow out of it when it's like, well, you know, work's actually kind of cool now because I'm getting paid real money. I have a family now. People mature out, and it's actually a, it's a technical term called, uh, with heroin abuse, called maturing out. Where the majority of people that have heroin problems, or take a lot of heroin, in, in the UK, that's where this idea comes from, just stop. They finish university, get a job, and think, oh, I probably don't take heroin anymore. I'm having a good time being able to buy things. And I have family now and all these other things. So they sort of wake up one day and it's like, wow, I don't really need to take heroin anymore. 
right? So it's interesting that, yeah, it, it actually can explain why the sort of strangeness of the behavior and it all kind of hangs together. And this can be all kinds of different behaviors. This could be people that eat too much. This could be people that uh, look at too much internet porn. We almost say That's the beauty. A lot of explanatory power here. Questions? <clears throat> So that's the model. One of the things that's often done is we apply economic thinking to behavior. And there's a whole thing up there called behavioral economics, which is applying laws, I bet that in quotes, because I'm not sure how many laws are economics really, to behavior. One of the things we can look at is something called elasticity of demand. If a drug is really going to be super reinforcing, it's going to be inelastic. What does that mean? Inelastic demand. It means if you raise the price, the behavioral price, people or rats or whatever are still going to be going to pay that price to, 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 to take the, the drug. You can also talk about literally raising a price. Right? We'll talk about that in a sec. I don't know why that's black. Uh, Carol in 1993 has some interesting data on PCP, giving PCP to monkeys. Monkeys on Angel Dust, which oddly enough was the name of my punk band in the early 90s. <laughs> um, the demand there was elastic when the price got really high, but it's inelastic at low prices. What's the price? How many times the monkey has to push a bar to get a little bit of Angel Dust? So we can take a look. Here's the thing of the data here. That's the number of responses to get the drug. The demand is inelastic until it gets it really super expensive. I think. Yeah. Now, if there's something else available that is pleasurable, saccharin, which is sweet, it's a sweetener, it's about 10 times more sweet than sugar, the monkeys will switch to that. They'll substitute that kind of behavior or sort of that drug. But if you take a look at the unit price, and we're talking about thousands of responses, and you can see here, this is a better way to look at it, that the responses don't drop until we're, we're, we're getting around thousands and thousands of responses required, in other words, a push in the bar before it gets some angel dust. Angel dust is very reinforcing. So we can actually compare two drugs now we yeah, pretty much have to do this animal studies, but you can compare two drugs and say, how much is an equivalent dose of cocaine and, you know, milligrams per kilogram, and morphine. And then you take a look at their elasticity of demand. So you start bringing up the ratio of responses to reinforcers. Okay, sort of classic learning psychology stuff. If you give them something else, they switch much more readily. So you see here saccharin, just water available, saccharin available. If there's just water available, they just keep responding. If it's saccharin, now they'll start dropping off. But look, if there's just water as the alternative, they just keep responding up to a thousand responses to get one hit. Wow. If you give them something else, it's going to feel good. Probably feel good as angel dust. It's just saccharin. But it's like, yeah, well, it's kind of getting hard. I'll just switch over now. 
It's interesting that, in fact, there are drugs with humans that are pretty inelastic. Well, and we'll talk often about, I'll, I'll mention the elasticity of demand of a drug, which really just says how reinforcing the drug is. In uh, 1978 or so, sometime in the late 70s, there was a real problem in Brazil with the uh, coffee harvest. The crop was basically destroyed in South America. Coffee went up, coffee at the time cost about a dollar a pound, which would be about, you know, two and a quarter a kilo, which is cheaper than now, right? Yeah, but people all, but bread was also 80 cents a loaf and gas was, you know, 20 cents a liter. It, there's been inflation. The wage was like three was like, bucks a dollar. It wasn't even three, it was three when I was at university. So I was, you know, around one something. There's, there was some significant inflation in the games. The interesting point is that in the inflation, you can probably figure it's with double-digit inflation in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, most people don't realize this. You probably, you've all lived, grown up in a world without inflation. Prices didn't go, don't really go up too much anymore. Right? Really. Not really. Not compared to, you don't get 15% a year. Um, people had mortgages, for example, in the early 80s that the, the uh, interest rate was as high as a credit card, like 18, 19, 20 percent. Oh yeah, yeah, so it was really tough. So let's say it's almost double. Almost double. So you can take a price from the early, mid, mid, you know, mid-70s, and you can double it, you get roughly what it is today for some commodities. That's just roughly. Coffee went up from being a dollar a pound to six dollars a pound, and coffee consumption did not decrease at all. Because people are dependent on caffeine, and caffeine is very reinforcing. It's interesting when you take a look at nicotine, you can raise the price, which has been done uh, in 1988. The price of a pack of cigarettes was about two bucks, and now it's ten. Closer to 11. Yeah, you know, it's not cheap. On the other hand, adults don't, that have started smoking, don't tend, the demand's pretty inelastic. The place where it's elastic is kids. So you don't get people starting smoking. Because the difference between like eight bucks and 10 bucks is nothing to us in the room here. It's two bucks when you're 12. And two bucks is two bucks, right? I mean, that's real money. Questions about that? So I'll often, I'll often mention that stuff. So drug-taking behavior can be easily modeled using animals. One of the conclusions of that. We all basically follow the general laws of learning, things like the matching law, pretty much everything that's ever been tested. Vertebrate or invertebrate follows those laws. And we use vertebrates, of course, because, frankly, their nervous systems are more like ours. They have a nucleus accumbens, etc. We often use rats or monkeys for those experiments. Not all drugs will be self-administered by all animals. So you can sometimes take a look at a drug and say, uh, sorry, an animal study, and you have to be careful. Uh, it's hard to get animals to, to, to uh, self-administer nicotine. It's hard to get them to self-administer alcohol. And it's, it's not very reinforcing, basically, for animals to take LSD. Indeed, when we look at some of the uh, defense mechanisms that have evolved, uh, in some plants and also in certain toads, 
it basically is the same as uh, LSD. There's a, a compound called bufotenine that's in um, Australian uh, toads, and basically it is like you can lick a toad, and it's like a hit acid, which led to the bizarre idea that people in Australia were licking toads. It's the most urbanized country in the world. You can score acid in Australia. It's not that hard. Nonetheless, for us that may be fun. Hey, look, I can, you know, I can see sound and hear colors, ever cool. You know, if you're a wallaby, I went for an Australian animal. <laughs> I'm opening the doors of perception, mate. You know, you, you don't, that doesn't happen. So it's not reinforcing. In fact, it's, I'm sure, very disturbing to If wallabies can be disturbed, disturbed wallabies are my men at work cover band. Um, I'll stop that shortly. All right. Questions? This stuff? All right. So, let's close that one. Okay, let us speak of alcohol. As it says here, a quote from Homer Simpson, cause of the solution to so many of life's problems. As you can see here, this is part of my cocktail shaker collection. It's an old picture. I don't really have them all displayed anymore because I really have nowhere to put them. I have so many. It's an old picture from Newfoundland. And actually, here's just a pile of empties. That's just what my basement looks like. Empties everywhere. And of course, there's our friend Homer. He has that great quote. Alcohols are not consumed. They really shouldn't be because they'll kill you in like small amounts or you know make you go blind, literally. Right? So most alcohols uh, we don't consume. We don't consume isopropyl alcohol. You can and you will get drunk from, from drinking isopropyl alcohol. Uh, you know, rubbing alcohol, you will get drunk. You'll also uh, do perhaps some serious damage to yourself. So you don't drink isopropyl alcohol. Again, you can. You can drink anything you want. I don't care. Go have a glass of hydrochloric acid. You can drink it. You shouldn't. It's bad for you. Even the smell of it makes me nauseous. Yeah, but, it's, but it still smells like alcohol, right? Like it still smells like really cheap vodka. And in fact, uh, a great book I read years ago, um, a World War II biography uh, called Bubba Black Sheep, which there was also a TV show, which was, which was nothing like the book. <laughs> Nothing like the book. And it's about a squadron of Marine, U.S. Marine pilots in, uh, in, in World War II. And they had, you know, like any military group, they had rubbing alcohol because they had it for wounds and stuff. They would take, they'd find limes on the island they were on, and they would mix it together with rubbing alcohol and sugar, and, 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 they, and the sugar cane they found on the island, and they would, they would make punch. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, and you could drink it, you'd be very careful, apparently. This was the same squadron that set up these guys were really kind of cool. Uh, they built autopilots for their Corsair fighter planes that were basically just pulleys so they could, they could sleep on long missions <laughs> flying fighter planes. Uh, they all smoked in their planes. They're a different, different time. So you can drink it. I was my, a friend of mine whose name I will not mention who drank rubbing alcohol once. Uh, he was quite drunk. Um, I watched him then. It, people used to get, I don't know, it's not as big a thing here. When I was in London, high school basketball is a big thing. 
So like your whole school would go to watch a basketball game on Friday night. So it'd be a thousand people watching a basketball game. And people would get drunk because, you know, you're a teenager, you just get drunk for stuff. Right? And um, my friend was actually carried off by, the ba- uh, by one of the gym teachers who was there by his feet across the, the floor in front of a thousand people. He got a huge cheer, though, which was kind of good. He waited like this. Uh, he had, and, he, and he'd been drinking rubbing alcohol. Way to go, you. Won't mention his name. Uh, methyl alcohol. However, ethanol is delicious. There are alcohols, in fact, that you can drink in small quantities uh, that actually show up in beer. In some beers, there's things like fusel alcohol. Um, they give some sort of flavor notes to beer. Okay, they, they aren't really that... that uh, they're more complicated molecules, and they aren't nearly as damaging. And you don't make hardly any of that in beer anyway. If you make beer, you can't really hurt yourself. Except for the, you know, ethanol. If you drink too much of it, you can get very sick. People have been making and drinking alcohol for a very long time. The humans have been doing this ever since we lived in towns. Okay? Indeed, there is a whole school of thought that says the reason the humans stopped being hunter-gatherers and the first humans that stopped being hunter-gatherers and moved into towns were Mesopotamians. Right? The Fertile Crescent, right? Between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, what we today call Baghdad. It's the first city. We used to think they stopped to cultivate grain. Well, they were cultivating grain. We thought, where are they cultivating grain? Oh, to make bread. Now, you look at the oldest bread recipe. It is for a bread called bapir, B-A-P-P-I-R, except it's probably like, you know, really spelled, you know, uh, bird... I, bird, bird, water. Like, I don't know how they're writing word. If you follow the recipe, you make something that's as hard as a rock. Like, it's, it's like a brick. Okay, that's where I had that come. So Mesopotamian, ancient Mesopotamians are controlled for life. Some sort of 2012 thing. It's all very confusing. Um, so this back here stuff is pretty amazing because it, it's honey and oats and barley. And then you cook the crap out of it. It sounds pretty good, but you end up with like a cookie that you can't eat. It's so hard you can't eat it. However, if you take bapir and you soak it in water and leave it out overnight, it makes beer. Cool. And in fact, there is a tablet. So their writing actually isn't like that. Just a bunch of symbols I can't read because I don't read the Mesopotamian. Mesopotamians had a goddess of brewing. This is civilization. This is why we are civilized people today, is because the Mesopotamians had a goddess of brewing and wanted to drink. We, have, we should be proud of this. This should be some sort of holiday, Mesopotamian day. This is the oldest beer recipe. It's a poem to the goddess Ninkasi, the goddess of brewing. And in fact, in 1991, well, 1990, the strange thing here is that this is just as um, the Persian Gulf War is about to start, the first one. There's 700,000 Allied troops in Saudi Arabia ready to attack Iraq. And an American brewery called Anchor Brewing Company, which makes an amazing beer called Anchor Steam Beer. And 
they had this recipe, and they actually followed it and made a batch of this stuff. They even had yeast that they cultivated out of uh, old porcelain jars from ancient Egypt. So they even used the same yeast strain. So that's kind of cool. So they really just started civilization so they could drink, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Now, some excerpts from the poem. Born of the flowing water, tenderly cared for by, by the, in her side, those are the people, those are the priests that got their, the priest in Ikasi. Having founded your town by the sacred lake, she finished this great walls for you. Ninkasi having founded your town by the sacred lake. They founded the town of Baghdad. Well, er. Then. They made beer! <laughs> You're the one who handles the dough and with a big shovel, mixing it in a pit, the batter with sweet aromatics. Things like dates and such. So they're actually giving a recipe here. And the dough is making batter. And they're roasting this stuff. Bakes the batter in the big oven, puts in order and piles in the whole grains. They're actually malting barley, which is really pretty amazing. We'll talk about that in a second. You are the one who the waters the malt set on the ground. The noble dogs keep away even the potentates. In other words, even the important people in town are kept away by dogs to guard the beer. Soaks the malt in a jar. The waves rise, the waves grapes fall. You're the one who spreads the cooked mash on the large reed mats. Coolness overcomes. I love that. That's a great line. Coolness overcomes. That'd be another good band name. You're the one who holds with both hands the great sweet wort. Wort is, and we'll talk about this in a second, this is water. This isn't beer yet. It's just uh, basically sugar water. Brewing it with honey and wine. The filtering vat, which makes a pleasant sound, you place appropriately on a large collector vat. When it pours out of the filtered beer from the collector vat, it's like the onrush of the Tigris and the Euphrates. That's civilization. That's pretty cool. Now, how did they, how did they figure this out? Um, Pretty much every culture at some point in its history has had alcohol. Now, usually the way... We, we know some things about alcohol. For example, you can even take a look at hunter-gatherer peoples today and they'll make alcohol um, of some sort. They typically are making something like beer or wine. Um, very often beer, though. Beer was a currency in ancient Egypt. You paid your taxes in beer in ancient Egypt. <laughs> So that's why you want to work for, like, you know, the Egyptian Revenue Service. That's free beers. <laughs> uh, stealing beer was a serious crime in ancient Egypt. You could, you could be killed for that. Capital. I mean, and I, again, I think it's a capital crime to steal beer. It's, you know, <laughs> alcohol abuse. I, I just think it's wrong. Um, and when you take a look at this, and what typically happens is that people discover that eating half kind of rotten fruit makes it a little bit loopy because it's getting fermented. And in fact, there are animals that do this, not human animals. Uh, elephants apparently do this. Cattle. Yeah, I've not heard of that. 
I know monkeys do it. In fact, there are monkeys in uh, all over Thailand that are sort of feral, and they live around these resort towns, and they just sneak up on, on people, and they just take their drinks and drink them. Because <laughs> it feels good. So pretty much every culture's had alcohol. You can even go, people wonder about like uh, places where there's no, what if, what if there's nothing like growing, like, you know, really, for a long period of time. Anyway, in, in the north, um, there are traditional recipes for taking milk of various animals and fermenting it, and it, you get a low alcohol beverage. Well, maybe it's great. You never know. All right, so how's it made anything with fermentation, right? You start with sugar, which you can get from a lot of places, fruit and vegetables. Um, with fruit and vegetables, you're basically making wine right now, because you can get sugar at all these things. Um, with grain, you're making beer. The grain can be malted or unmalted grain. Uh, what's malted grain? Um, you take grains, and you saw that the Nikasi, the, 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 the poem to Nikasi, actually mentions malting grain. You take grain and you spread it out, one layer, and you spray water on it. And it'll start to spread, because that's what grain does. It's its seeds. Once it starts to spread, uh, the, end, the uh, carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates in the grain, get broken down a little bit into sugars. That's fuel for the little growing plant. You then stop the, the, uh, the growth by drying the malt, drying the grain. Now you have malt. So you dry it, and there's a lot of ways to do this. For the longest time, it was done by fires. Uh, nowadays, in fact, it's literally done in what looked the same as giant clothes dryers. And it's put into a bag, and it's run in what looks like a giant industrial. I mean, when I say giant, like, you know, two stories high. <coughs> but a lot of traditional beers, even to this day, made in Europe uh, and North America, actually um, use fire to use, use, a, use a fire to, 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 to dry the beer, uh, dry the malt. And indeed, uh, you've heard of, they, they mentioned on you know, Budweiser's fire brood. All they mean by that, in fact, is that the malt, the little tiny bit of malt that burned, it's in Budweiser, American Budweiser, not the original Budweiser from Budweiser, which is Budweiser Budvar, which is a whole different beer. Um, it's just done with, with uh, fire. In fact, there are German beers where some of the smoke gets in. It's called Rauchbier, and it's smoked beer. It tastes smoky. It's like ham beer. It's awesome. I made my own roast, uh, smoked beer once. It was great. So you dry it. Now, you take them all, and you can almost any grain, uh, barley, rye, wheat, almost anything. Okay? We typically um, use barley. You start a mash. What's that? Well, you take this stuff, this uh, grain, and you mix it with water. And you don't boil it. You boil it, you ruin it. You keep it at, and there's a, I, I had a, a life for a while as a home brewer. Um, you boil it, sorry, you, you bring it up to about 153 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> you need a thermometer. 147 to 150 Beyond that, you've ruined it. You'll keep taking it off the burner, putting it back on the burner. So you don't boil Now you take that mash, which is what you've now made. You've taken this... It's called a mash. 
and you sparge it. What that means, it's basically straining it through a great big device. Think about the poem to Linkasi. This hasn't changed a great deal. This whole way we do this hasn't really changed. And what you end up with, so you put it through something called a water ton, which you can make your own. You do it with a, um, a cooler that has a tap on it. And inside it, you put something, uh, a plastic vessel. You put a bunch of holes in, like a big colander. And then the grains don't get through. And it comes through. And then you take water and pour it back through that a few times. And it basically washes all the sugars out of the spent, what are called spent grains. They have no sugar left in them. And you take the spent grains and you throw them in your compost. Or you put them in bread. They're tasty. What you have now is called a wort. And the wort is boiled. Now you boil. Maybe an hour. Maybe as much as six if you're out of your mind. Um, you let it cool. Now you may be adding other flavoring agents here. This wasn't done until the 18th, 19th century, which is you, typically today we add hops. Right? And hops are like a, they're an herb basically. And they give bitterness to beer. They have, a, they have preservative qualities. And if you add hops during the boil, you get bitterness. And the preservative, if you add them after you've taken it off the boil, they just give aroma. And if you know the smell of, uh, what's a good hoppy beer? If you know, do you, anybody here ever drink Pilsner or Kell? Okay. Uh, anybody here ever drink an English ale? And it kind of smells flowery? None of you, you guys don't, you guys just, just like port, right? Just, I mean, I drink that stuff too. I drink whatever's available. My favorite beer is whatever's in front of me. I've served some. Yeah, see, that's different, though. Yeah, but when you open it, it has a smell, a pleasant smell, an almost grassy, flowery smell. That's from the aroma. That hasn't been... Originally, it was things like ginger and cinnamon. They were using stuff like that. Um, you had Easter bacteria. Now, in the time of the Mesopotamians, they didn't have pure cultures of yeast. They left it out. And there's yeast floating in the air. The same way, you know how you can take a glass of orange juice... And leave it out, and it'll get kind of fizzy and kind of off-tasting. That's because it's being naturally fermented by wild yeasts in the air and bacteria. And then you drink it. It's gross, but it's got a little kick to it. And that's typical. That was how it was done. Now, you know, in a brewery they have, in almost all kinds of breweries, uh, they're very clean environments. It's like they're making computer chips kind of thing because they have these pure cultures of yeast, only one certain kind of genome. Um, typically, if you're making your own beer, you're almost always making ale. Even if, if you use a beer kit, you don't know that stuff with, a, with the, the grains and all that. You get really thick, concentrated syrup. They've done all that for you. Um, you get Saccharomyces cerevisiae. I took Latin for reasons just for that. That's a top fermenting yeast. It ferments at the top of the wort. So the... the Yeast goes to the top of the wort, and you get a foamy kind of thing on top. Remember they talked in the, in the poem about the onrush of the Tigris and the Euphrates? Think about a great big vat, and you would be able to hear it. And in fact, if you're making your own beer, you, you can hear it. You can put a little airlock on it, because CO2 is coming off. This ferments at about, if you want to do it properly, you should probably do it at about 12 degrees Celsius. But you can do this. The nice thing about this is it's pretty forgiving, this kind of yeast. So you can do it in, you know, in the summer at about 20, 22 degrees. Try to keep it as cool as you can, but you don't have to get it cold. Then there's lager yeast. 
uh, which was discovered, uh, isolated in the 1800s. Uh, Saccharomyces varum used to be called Car- Carlsbergensis, which is kind of cool because it was discovered by Mr. Carlsberg, who founded Carlsberg Brewery. Kind of cool. That's bottom fermented and it's cold. It, you, you ferment that at about 5, 10 degrees Celsius. Well, more like 5. And you actually store it. Lager is a German word meaning store. And you store it right around the temp- freezing point of water, about 33 degrees Celsius. So that one degree, uh, sorry, 33 degrees Fahrenheit, one degree Celsius. Um, it's a cleaner taste. That's Labatt's blue is a lager. The warmer fermenting temperature actually causes not just fermenting into uh, ethanol, but you also get methanol. You also get uh, higher alcohols like fusel alcohol, things like that that have like kind of a different kind of flavor profiles. This doesn't do any of that. And it ferments at the bottom. So if you're making lager, which is really complicated and hard, um, and it takes a long time, uh, the, the, you don't see the fermentation, the foam at the top, it's all at the bottom. This is easy. If you make ale, you can, the day you brew, you can be drinking it in two weeks. You, should, you can't really drink that for three months. You've got to lager it cold. And if you go to the UK and you drink uh, cask-conditioned ale, it literally was, was, was barley two weeks ago. And they're pulling it right out of a cask, and that is awesome. You can also make specialty beers with bacteria. Um, this is done uh, in parts of, of uh, Holland and, and Belgium. And you get Britomyces bruxellinus and, and Britomyces lambicus. Um, one of them, as you can see, you might guess, is native to the Brussels area, and this is native to the area of Belgium called Lombique. Um, those were, those are the only breweries actually where they don't clean up and they don't look like a clean room. They actually leave the cobwebs and everything because they let it all totally naturally get infected. And then you get the beer sour, and then they add fruit to it, and you get things like Crike, which is cherry beer, Belgian cherry beer. There's a whole world out there. Go to the liquor store, and and you'll see the 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 the, the Lake Port and the and the Laker. And all these to cheat, which is fine. Perhaps Blue Ribbon. You're probably all a bunch of hipsters drink PBR. And you'll see that. But then you'll see something that looks like it's in a champagne bottle. And it'll just say Crike on it. K-R-I-E-K. And it's, it's cherry beer. And it's made with this Lombic. It's a Lombic uh, beer. It's amazing. Now we use pure cultures of yeast. Um, you don't, by the way, if you start making beer, which I encourage you to do, it's cheaper. And you can make better beer than you can buy typically once you're used to it. You'll get a little pouch of yeast. The best thing to do with that is, is make bread with it. It's not really very good yeast. If you really get into it, you can actually order pure cultures of yeast. But then when you make beer, you've got to like hold your breath when you pour the thing in, and you've got to clean your kitchen down with chlorine. It's a whole process, but it's fun. You usually buy it like 2,000 cells at a time. It's pretty awesome. All right. So that's how you make beer. You know how you make wine? You take juice and put yeast in it. Wine's boring. Beer's got cooking. All kinds of other cool stuff. Now, alcohol boils at about 78 degrees Celsius. Water boils, of course, as you know, at 100 degrees Celsius. So some monks at a monastery, a Benedictine monastery, invented, they took wine and they made brandy. The first 
distilled beverage was called Benedictine. You can still get Benedictine. It's a kind of brandy. Brandy is basically wine that's been boiled off, so the, 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 some of the water's boiled off. So you want to get to around 78, you collect the, the vapor, right? Problem is, if you get any higher than that, you get bring off, there's other things in there too, some of these other alcohols. And you really don't want to be drinking large quantities of those in great concentration. And the heating actually can cause chemical reactions as well. And then you can end up with things like isopropyl alcohol. And that, this is illegal to do. Making beer is completely illegal. That's illegal. Or you can freeze it. You could take, you ever make Applejack? You make apple cider, right? And then you put it in the freezer, in like a tray. And then you take out the chunks of ice, because water freezes at a, at a higher temperature than alcohol. And what you've done now is taken some of the, you've made higher concentration of alcohol. That's called Applejack. You make it with apple cider. That's also illegal. And it's actually completely safe, except that you're drinking yellow alcohol. This involves boiling things that can explode and involves something that can, you know, you could make alcohols that will kill you. This doesn't, but it's still illegal. Because it's a higher concentration. No, I don't think that's why. I just think it's illegal because it's, it technically is distillation. I think that's the only reason. Like, I, I just think that, and there's so few people that are going to be doing this on an industrial level that there's, you know, or even at a, at a it's harmless, basically. You know, the cops aren't going to break into your house and say, you're making Apple Jack. If you've got a still, you might have a problem. <laughs> Those are both, as I said, illegal. In Canada and the United States. Anybody who tells you that they have a still, like, you know, there's a lot of people around living in the country and they make their own moonshine. Oh, yeah, it's completely legal. They're lying to you. <laughs> it's like if somebody says, yeah, I grow my own weed, but I got a permit. No, you don't. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you don't. You might, but it's exceedingly unlikely. The big reason here, I think, why is for that tax taxation because they, they tax distillation. All right. So, questions about that? Do you understand how alcohol is made? It's fun. It's delicious. So everything like rye and all that stuff comes through distillation. It's distillation, and in fact, what they're making is something like beer, but they use they use um, malted rye. They use malted rye, and then they end up collecting that and then aging it in casks of some sort. Um, Scotch whiskey is barley. Um, the flavors in Scotch come a lot of times from how it, the malt is dried, because they the way they they dry malt for making Scotch is they dry it with fires made of peat, so they're burning peat, and that's where that flavor that kind of has a bit of an iodine note to it <laughs> comes in Scotch. Uh, things like vodka are basically just they aren't aged typically. Uh, gin is basically just grain alcohol with flavorings added while it ages. So you've got things like juniper berries, a very common thing to add. If you take a look on the side of a bottle of, say, Bombay Sapphire Gin, which is delicious gin, it actually shows you all the little aromatics they put in. There's always juniper berries. If you ever smell a juniper berry, like if you see a juniper bush and you smell the berry, it's like you've got a, a, a gin plant. <laughs> but it's not actually gin, it's just the smell. So yeah, anything like that that's... See, yeast can only live in about... 17% alcohol by volume. Beyond that, it just dies. The concentration is too high. It kills it. So champagne yeast. There are certain strains going to hit 2021. 20, They're sort of, over the years, they've been developed. Anything beyond that, you've got distilled spirits. Yeah. 
You can make wine, or you can make alcohol, uh, sorry, a beer with champagne yeast too. You just don't, you need a whole lot of sugar in it. Usually it doesn't taste very good. You can also make mead, fermented honey water. It's the Vikings made. Made that once. That's awesome. Is that? Oh. It tastes like honey and alcohol. (laughs) And it's fizzy. It's like champagne. It was amazing. Um, blood alcohol levels, how we tend to measure this, which is milligrams per 100 milliliters of blood. Um, and we do it typically by percentage, right? So when we talk about the alcohol content, 0.05 is, I believe, the new legal limit, right, in Ontario? Well, no, the legal limit is still 0.08, but between 0.05 and 0.08, you, you can run the risk of like a 12-hour suspension. Oh, right. And, or if you don't have the final tier of your... Graduated driver's license. Yeah, yeah, until you have your full G, you cannot drink at all. Yeah. Um, you might see millimoles per liter. You'll see that in the scientific literature. You won't see blood alcohol levels so much. Uh, they can be, they can be. And I think I mentioned this the other day. They can actually just do a simple transformation be converted into each other. The nice thing about blood alcohol levels is you can measure it with a, um, you don't have to do a blood test, right? You literally can measure it with a breathalyzer. The correlation is 1.0. So the idea that breath tests don't detect alcohol is ridiculous. They actually do it very, very well. Very, very well. And this is typically where people come in. They'll often have an expert witness come in when someone is um, challenging this in court, and it's usually just somebody that explains how the breathalyzer works, and then the, the case is closed. <laughs> well, risk administration, well, we all know you drink it. So alcohol is a funny drug. Um, absorption is just always defined as when, uh, whenever we get faster than excretion, we still call it the absorption phase, okay? Because you're absorbing and you're excreting. When the absorption is greater than excretion, we call it the absorption phase, and that's right here. That's phase A, right? And then we plateau, that's B and C. That's where absorption and excretion are roughly equal. Now, absorption doesn't just mean you're constantly drinking. Like, once you put it in your body, it doesn't all just happen right away. So it's still sitting in your gut, right? And then the excretion phase, when it's faster than absorption, phase D here. You note there, it's linear, right? We don't measure it in half-life. So the alcohol... Uh, metabolism isn't measured in half-life. We measure this, it's a constant, it's just a constant uh, rate of excretion. Which is one of the reasons, in fact, that, and the time course isn't too short, so, in fact, this is one of the reasons that, for example, you really, if you were drinking the night before, you probably shouldn't be driving a car the next day. Right? I've become addicted to Tic Tacs. I love them. Sadly. Okay, so like... Yeah. What... How long would it typically take to get it completely out of your system? It depends on how much you drink and a lot of other things, but I mean, a typical night, you know, you have like six drinks in like three hours kind of thing, maybe. Like, now you're just going and having a few drinks and then talking about just handing back alcohol. Um, you can still blow over the legal limit the next morning. 
one of the things you should try is some of these sort of psychomotor tests you can do. Because it used to be that the way they detected the effects of alcohol weren't with breathalyzers. That wasn't until the 1970s. Before that, was used where they would what the cops called drunk tests, right? You know, walk a straight line, those kind of things. Right, one foot in front of the other. Um, put your feet together, close your eyes, put your hand out and touch your nose which is trivial. Try that after one beer. You'd be amazed. You'll miss it. Whoa, that's, I didn't think this was hard. I, I don't feel drunk, but it's amazing. It's already affecting me. And the same thing, try it the next morning after a few drinks. It's really not a very good idea. You probably still are impaired. Even if it's not legally impaired, you're probably still impaired. Yeah, like, I was wondering, would the slope of that line, that D phase, increase, or like get more negative if you had more drinks, or would it always be that slope? It would depend very person to person. Um, like but I you mean within a person? I understand it's linear. Yes. But would it have a faster, right, like a like more negative I see. slope? Yeah. If? If you had two drinks as opposed to one, or three drinks as opposed to one. Or would it be the same? I think it should be the same. Wow. I think it should be the same. The plateau phase will be one, and the absorption phase will be one. Huh. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But that's a guess. <laughs> I don't really know for sure. That's, but that's, I'm pretty sure that would happen. So like, like I said, unlike other drugs, you still have it in you a long time later. And this is why you can wake up in the morning and taste alcohol in your breath. Right? If you wake up in the morning after drinking, and you may have slept 12 hours, if you wake up the morning right before you went to bed, you had a peanut butter sandwich, you don't taste peanut butter in your mouth. Right? But you still can taste alcohol because you're still excreting it. Part of the metabolism is um, the excretion phase that's through your breath and your sweat and your pee, basically. So absorption, as I said, is a most, oh, sorry, most of this play takes place in um, your gut, which isn't surprising. Where the hell else would it take place? Right? Alcohol can't be ionized, so the pH uh, doesn't affect absorption. We've talked about how ionized molecules aren't, um, uh, uh, don't tend to be um, ingested, sorry, aren't absorbed, but alcohol can't be ionized. The first pass metabolism, where it's first taken up is in the stomach. Well, where the hell else would it be? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and what happens now is an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase starts to break down the alcohol. If you're biologically inclined, you should pretty much be able to see what that does. It's lopping off some hydrogen. The more of this you have, the quicker you will break down the alcohol and not get drunk. And it's interesting, um, if you look at different ethnic groups, especially Asian people, um, not South Asian, but more like uh, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, that kind of Asian, uh, and native people from Canada, United States, South America, they don't really have nearly the amount of alcohol dehydrogenase that uh, other people do, which explains why they make more of a problem with alcohol, uh, I've heard it said, um, because you can get drunk more quickly. Make, it makes you a cheap drunk, so it's good. Got that going for you. But yeah, there's an enzyme. It's literally, uh, there's a chemical cause of there uh, being uh, differences between uh, different cultures. So this is why, for example, 
you will see more alcohol. This may be one of the reasons you might see more alcohol problems in certain cultures than others, which is interesting. So who would have the highest? Uh, I don't know who has the highest. Everybody else has the same level. And then you have these two groups that are basically Asian groups in the world have lower. Our women have less alcohol dehydrogenase than men, though, on average. No matter what your culture is, what your background, your physical background. Men can drink more than women. Even a man of the same size as a woman. Again, on average, just like on average. So you can't take a native person and a white guy and say, white guy can drink more than native. It's not true. Necessarily. We have groups, though. It's about group differences, okay? So when I say women and men, I'm talking about the average woman and the average man. This is not including tolerance and stuff like that. Yeah, just on average, men have more alcohol, make alcohol dehydrogenase more efficiently than women. I don't know why. I don't know functionally why. It doesn't make any sense, you know. It's hard to think of an evolutionary reason for that. I mean, I could make something up. Abstainers have more alcohol dehydrogenase. People that don't drink as much or don't drink at all metabolize alcohol a little more efficiently than people that do drink. Why? I don't know. That makes no sense. No, it, it's bizarre. Yeah. The difference, though, think about this, behavioral tolerance, you know what it feels like after you've had a couple of beers and you can deal with it. Someone who hasn't drank before, even if they're metabolizing it more quickly, doesn't expect, isn't expected nearly as much. By the way, beer stays in your stomach longer than other alcohol. So in fact, what's that mean? It means it gets broken down more quickly. Yes, on average, a drink is a drink is a drink. You know, like a bottle of beer or a glass of wine or a shot of vodka is roughly the same. But really, it's only roughly the same. Because when you're in grade seven and they're teaching you about alcohol, they're not going to say, now, alcohol, this stays in your stomach longer, so it's safer to drink. They're never going to tell you that. Because it's not really the case. You wouldn't say, well, you can drink beer. Uh, the bubbles actually make the metabolism a little faster, the CO2. So you break it down a little more quickly. You take it up and break it down a little more quickly. It's interesting. It's bizarre. It just is. High concentrations actually make it make metabolism happen faster too. So you see this is now balanced up with the fact that if you do drink vodka, you know, 40% alcohol, right? <clears throat> so there are some subtle differences between straight alcohol and something like beer or wine, but you shouldn't really concern yourself with it. It's a good rule of thumb that a drink is a drink is a drink. It's a good rule of thumb. Especially when you're calculating, like, can I drive or not? You know, your answer should always be, I've been drinking, I can't. Because I might be on the road, you might hurt me. Or someone I like. Or, you know, work with. You might inconvenience me in some way if you drink and drive. If you just kill yourself, it's your own business. You hurt other people, that pisses me off. So alcohol doesn't dissolve in fat. So the higher percentage of body fat you have, the higher your peak blood alcohol level. 
So in fact, you can get drunker, basically. In males, higher, you get higher blood alcohol levels uh, with age. So in fact, guys, as they, as they age, get drunk more easily. Or get drunker. They can actually have a higher amount of, of alcohol in them. Peak amount. It circulates through the lungs, goes through the blood. So you can actually smell alcohol in your breath. It's not just, like I said, it's not like when you eat peanut butter and you smell peanut butter breath or the worst breath ever, which is like canned tuna breath. It really is bad, right? But that's because there's like bits of tuna in your teeth and coating your mouth. I know that's kind of gross, right? But it's not like, you know, two hours later, it's like, oh, you got tuna. Okay. Uh, most of the metabolism is done by the liver, which you should probably know. <laughs> well, most everything's always metabolized liver and kidneys. They're basically things that take poisons out of you. Um, and we all know that you get problems with liver from alcohol. Uh, alcohol dehydrogenase is, is, uh, converts the alcohol into acetyl uh, dehyde. Okay. And next, it's converted into acetyl coenzyme A. And there's a whole separate parallel system we have called the microsomal ethanol oxidizing system. And what it does, it's almost like it's a backup system for, for metabolizing alcohol. So the more you have in the system, so the more you've been drinking, the harder this thing works, the NEOS. Um, and it can be disabled with continued heavy drinking. And oddly, it's also used in the barbiturate metabolism. Now, if it's used in the barbiturate metabolism, that means to break down barbiturates like phenobarbital. You have to have that system activated. Now, if that's the case, if it has to be activated when you're metabolizing phenobarbital, then if you drink vodka with your phenobarbital, the vodka can't be broken down as quickly, and neither can the phenobarbital, in which case you get a super additive effect of the drug. Right? Make sense? So a little bit of sleeping pills and a little bit of martinis actually adds up to a whole lot more of each, in essence, the effect it has. Because the, the road is basically blocked. The road is basically blocked. Yeah, that's right. And actually, actually, I mean, that's, that's how, that, that's a way to, 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 that's a recipe to kill yourself, is uh, vodka and phenobarbital. And did I, I talk to you guys about that? There was the guy, that oh, was the brain behavior thing. There was a cult in the, about 1996 that all thought that Comet Hale-Bopp was actually a spaceship coming to take them away. By the way, Hale-Bopp was awesome. You could actually see a comet in the sky for like two months. It was very cool. It was very awesome. But these guys thought, it was a spaceship, and the way they were going to get to the spaceship was they would have to become spirits. So they all killed themselves, and they killed themselves with um, uh, a couple shots of vodka and a couple of hundred milligrams of phenobarbital mixed in, in like cereal and like porridge. 
So you, even their last meal wasn't good. And they all had purple sweat suits on. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And, okay. Nike, and Nike shoes. Yeah. And they were posters. One of the first sort of viral things that ever went around the internet in 1996 was somebody turned it into a poster and said, just do it. <laughs> all these dead guys. horrible, really. It's pretty awful. Bill Newbegin, history prof, had that on his office door. It's a horrible thing, really. You know, but it was kind of funny, too. Yeah. Unless you're late to those people, then it's horrible. And quite a tragedy. Even either way. But nonetheless, this is how they killed themselves. Um, we don't really quite know how alcohol works. Why do you think I was padding the lecture with things about Mesopotamia? Um, it's, oh, also, that stuff's interesting. But frankly, this, there are some drugs we're talking about this course, and I'll say, there are receptors here, 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 done, works. The easiest one to understand you will find will be the one on opiates. They're just trivial. It's very simple to understand. Quite sure how this works yet. Somehow, alcohol depresses the functioning of ion channels and glutamate receptors. Remember, glutamate is always excitatory, the universally excitatory neurotransmitter, the most common neurotransmitter in your brain. Well, it's going to depress that ion, the functioning of that ion channel, the sodium's not going to rush in as quickly. All right, sir. In fact, after chronic use of, of, of alcohol, this is professional drinking. This is the people that get up in the morning and put rye on their Fruit Loops. Okay. Or their coffee. Or their coffee, yeah. Mr. Leahy on uh, Trailer Park Woods would be an example. By the way, if you, you use the Twitter, follow Mr. Leahy. It's hilarious. It's constant quotes. Usually things like, things like shit storms, but... If you, if, you, if you follow, if you watch the, the trailer park boys, if you don't, you won't get it at all. You'll just look like a what? <laughs> but he did actually give me a, he give, give me, gave me a retweet on New Year's Eve. I said, that Mr. Leahy, the shit balls about to fall in shit square. He loved that one. <laughs> Again, if you don't watch the show, this didn't make any sense. You think, why do you keep saying shit? Well, you know, it's me. Um, the brain kind of adjusts after chronic use, like Mr. Leahy level use, you know? And in fact, this might be the cause of some of the withdrawal symptoms. So the brain adjusts basically somehow. We don't really know. Um, meaning we don't need as much glutamate. I'm going to put this. The, the, the ion channels are a little uh, easier to open. Let's put it that way. So now what ends up happening is that what do you get when you have, um, well, you're not drinking. A lot of stimulation. What's that going to lead to? Things like feeling like there's stuff all over your body. DTs. Hallucinations, right? The proverbial pink elephant, right? Barney Gumbel from The Simpsons. So the really nasty withdrawal symptoms, that may be the cause. Um, and we partially know this because of a, uh, an alcohol antagonist that has this effect on glutamate receptors and it's called RO154513. So it acts as an alcohol antagonist um, in the glutamate system. Now, this is not like the James Bond drug. This is not like before you go play Baccarat with whomever. Take one of these, Bond. You can have as many martinis as you want. And there's nothing like that. Right? 
So those adjustments in the brain, is that why alcoholics can function as mm. well as... It's not so much that. I mean, what's happening, it's probably partially that. The biggest thing that's happening there is, is, is behavioral tolerance. You actually learn how to function on the drug. And this is with any kind of drug. So a lot of times we'll be surprised when we find out that someone's an alcoholic. They'll tell us. And we'll go, really? Oh, I was drunk all the time. And you go, well, yeah, I know you drank a lot at night and stuff. No, 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 all day. And I have friends, like I said the other day, I was somebody where I used to teach in Newfoundland. <clears throat> There's people I've known since that most people don't know they're professional drinkers. But they are. And it's kind of, um, most people don't know because they learn how to function on the drug. Effects of alcohol. Blood vessels dilate. That's why you feel warm. It actually isn't making you warm, you're losing heat. <laughs> but it, you feel warm. Um, right? Because you blood vessels dilate. More blood pumps. You feel warm. Your body feels warm, but actually you're really losing heat, right? Think about that. get a decrease in REM. So the next night, or the, like, usually it would be that night, most people drink at night, um, you get a decrease in REM sleep. You need REM sleep. It's important. This is why, for example, you can go to bed, you can, do, you, know, you can drink so much you pass out. Or, you know, not pass out, but you drink so much that you get really tired, you lie down, you fall asleep, and you wake up in the morning and still feel tired because you didn't actually dream. You didn't get REM sleep. This is why... One of the things that a lot of times people will say, I can't sleep, I'll just have a couple of drinks. Yeah, you'll sleep, but you're not going to have proper sleep, and you're, you're going to need to, to sort of catch up on it the next night. People are more talkative when they drink, and they have a higher pitched and louder voice. And I think we all know that. Your voice kind of goes up, half an octave kind of, <coughs> excuse me, kind of thing, you just get louder. You know, you get to that point, you know, remember when you were young and you were a teenager and your parents asking if you're drinking, you try to over-enunciate your words so you don't slur them? No, I am, have not been drinking, Dad. You know. During absorption, that's when you get the euphoria. It feels good. Woohoo! Right? That's a good time. During excretion, that's when you're lethargic. You know, it gets to like halfway through the night, maybe the end of the night, and you're all just sitting around like this. Uh, you know, that's when you're lying in bed at night and you think, I've really got to pee, but and that's when you have one of those drunken debates with yourself. If I pissed myself, well, I fall asleep quick enough and I won't even notice. You know, that's when you know you've been drinking. <laughs> you got a decrease in visual acuity, and most of us here have actually drank alcohol enough to know we don't see as well when we drink. You can actually drink so much that you start to have, your vision gets blurred, but even just a couple of drinks, you'll notice this. If you've ever tried to play a first person shooter video game after two beers, right, that's not just your 
your hand-eye coordination and your reaction time, which are also reaction times increasing. It's also literally, you don't see as well, right? And this explains, in fact, you can drink enough that you get blurred vision, double vision, things like that. You really should. That's a good indication you've had enough. There are memory effects. Um, typically, we're talking here about you can't encode things as well as you do when you're not drinking. The interesting thing is, though, there's something called encoding specificity in cognitive psychology, and it talks about um, retrieval cues. And alcohol can act, because if you encode something when you're drinking, you're going to remember it again. I talked about this the other day. You're going to remember it again the next time you're drinking. You may have had some kind of experience where you drank, and then someone says to you that... Uh, Oh, do you remember the stupid thing you did last night? It's like, no, not really. And they tell you, you go, oh, that's embarrassing. And you just, the nice thing you think to yourself, at least I don't remember it. I did something dumb, but it's like, well, that's okay. I don't remember it. That's, then the neck give a couple of drinks and go, oh, my God, it's all coming back to me. I can't believe I hit on my boss's wife. You know, something like that. <laughs> you know, like, oh, God. Now I remember doing it. It's even worse. Uh, you can drink so much to get what are called blackheads. That's when you literally don't remember. You ever had this when you don't remember things from the next day? Like, literally, they're gone. Like, there's always like brownouts. That's kind of like the first thing I was talking about. An actual blackout where like parts of time are missing. They can happen when you're drinking. Again, you'd have to drink a lot. You're sitting somewhere, and the next thing you know, you're in the bathroom, and you get your hand around the toilet, and you go, how did I get here? Because you're throwing up. How did I even make it here? I don't remember. That's disturbing. That's, again, one of those indications you've probably had enough. Switch to a delicious fruit juice. Water's good. I think that one happens a little bit more when you're a teenager. It typically does, but, I mean, there are people that, uh, when they're older... You know, it happens to people. How did I get home? Things like that. And then you see the cars parked outside. You go, oh my God, I drove. You know, those kind of things are very disturbing. That's something that should tell you that you should slow down a tad on the drinking. Right? A, if you watch Mad Men, there's a, there's, a, there's a scene like this pretty much every episode. You know, Don's driven home. He has no idea how he got there. He's had sex with three women on the way home. Smoked four packs of cigarettes. And then the next day he goes and gives a killer presentation and gets the Kodak account. You know. Ah, uh, the 60s. A much more civilized time in some respect. All right, on that note, that makes me sound like I think that we should all be cheating on our wives and drinking too much while driving, which I don't. Um, we'll pack it in for today. We'll continue this stuff next time. Thanks, guys. Fallacy without a warning. Friday night is when I fly and I'm gonna be
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.